And we'll be in Proverbs 25 today for our afternoon Bible study. And it's uh, verses 1 to 14. Proverbs 25, 1 to 14. There it says, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, transcribed. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is insearchable. Take away the dross from the silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better to be said to you, Come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. Do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end, when your neighbor humiliates you? Argue your case with your neighbor, and do not reveal the secret to another. Or he who hears it will reproach you, and the evil report about you will not pass away. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to the listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we pray that your word today, Lord, would be spoken in right circumstances. Lord, that your word would be to us as apples of gold in settings of silver. Lord, like a cold snow in the time of harvest that brings refreshing to the soul of the one who hears it. Lord, may your word always be in such a way to us, Lord, always giving to us greater discernment, Lord, greater wisdom, Lord, reproving and correcting us so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So, Lord, may you today equip us for all good things, and, Lord, conform us more and more to the image of your Son, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 5 through the rest of the chapter begins what uh, many scholars or those who have uh, studied and searched this book out, the final uh, part or the final book of the book of Proverbs, and it begins with this uh, inscription here that these also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. That these Proverbs are accredited or given to Solomon, that these are things that Solomon stated. And we know that Solomon, uh, when the Lord asked him for what he desired, and God promised to give to him any gift that he wanted, his desire was wisdom, so that he might rule over God's people in a proper way. And so God gave to him a mind and an understanding of wisdom that surpassed all men of his time, and all men of many times, other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Solomon is the one who has written many of these proverbs, these wise sayings, these very catchy, easy to uh, understand, uh, they're easy to remember, and, and they're stated in a way that is very memorable. Uh, and this is what Solomon has done here in the book of Proverbs, which is why, though not all of these Proverbs are written by Solomon, not every verse in the book is ascribed to him, yet generally speaking, the majority did come from him. 
And here, beginning in chapter 25, these are also Proverbs of Solomon, but they were recorded during the time of Hezekiah. Right? The men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed these things and put them into this format that we have before us today. So they were known, they were published, they were spoken during the days of Solomon, whether that was orally or whether he wrote them down and they were scattered here and there. It was these men during the time of Hezekiah who took them and put them together and place them in the way that we have them, in the order that is here. But they originated with Solomon in terms of the human agent. And then ultimately, according to 2 Peter 1, they originated with God, with the Spirit of God, because no prophecy of Scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation. But those men were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God, so that what we have for us is the very Word of God, Solomon being one such prophet in which the word of God is delivered to us. Then in verse 2, he begins to give these wise sayings, these proverbs that have come from Solomon. 2 to 7 is its own section, so we'll deal with it. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. Here, one of the things that reveals to us the glory of God or one of those things that is true of him that makes a distinction between God and between his creatures, especially between uh, his rational creatures, men and angels, is God has all knowledge, all wisdom, omniscience. It all belongs to God and to God alone. And there are certain things that God knows that we do not know and that we will never know, that belong only to him, that are concealed from men and from angels and belong only to God. And this is a way for God to make a distinction between his glory and the glory that he bestows upon his creatures. Because we have more knowledge and understanding than the brute beast, right? Hopefully, though sometimes I begin to question it, you know, uh, men understand more than a dog or a cat or some dumb farm animal, you know, um, But certainly our knowledge does not rise to the level of God. That God has certain things that he has kept for himself, that he has concealed from men, and this is the glory of God. The secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. There are secret things that belong only to God. Things that he knows that no one else knows. And that he keeps for himself and he does not reveal to man. And this shows a distinction between his knowledge and between ours. He is the omniscient Lord. He is the one who has decreed all things. He knows already what is going to happen in the future, but he has not revealed that to us. He knows his perfect decrees that he has laid out from before the foundation of the world. God knows every one of his elect ones that he's going to call to salvation, though these things are concealed to us. Now, sometimes those things that are concealed are concealed momentarily. Ultimately, God can reveal those things to us, but he knows the end and the beginning. He knows everything, and he has that perfect knowledge now. He knows how it is that he brought the world into creation. When he laid the foundation of it, God and God alone was there and none of us were there. So he knows and possesses this knowledge that is too wonderful for us to attain to. In Job 38, in Job 38, this is what the Lord challenges Job with because part of Job's problem is his belief in his knowledge that he has everything figured out and that God needs to answer him uh, for what he is doing. 
And the Lord makes it very clear to Job that God's ways are beyond human comprehension. And there are certain things that Job does not know. He doesn't have all the facts of the issue. And therefore, these claims that he's making, he's doing so in a boastful way, in a sinful way, going beyond what is proper for a man of faith. Job 38.1, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Who stretched out the line of it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the seas with doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garments, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. Here God is asking him, Were you there when I did all these things? Do you know what the earth is laid upon? The cornerstone of there's so many aspects, even of the created order, that even in our uh, scientific, so-called scientific day, and in our advanced state of the building of human knowledge, and yet even now we're just scratching the surface of some of the things that have been fully known by God from before, and he's the one that put all these things into place. So there are things that God knows that we do not. He conceals them from us, and this is the glory of God. We know as well that the day and hour of the return of Christ, we do not know. But who does know that day? The Lord knows. The Lord knows it perfectly. God knows those things, but he has not revealed them to us. And it is his glory to conceal a matter. Also, it is glorious of God that when God forgives us of our sins, he conceals the matter. He takes our sins and casts them as far as the east is from the west. He throws them into the sea of forgetfulness. Does God take every hidden sin or every private sin that we have that we confess to him, and does he announce it publicly to the whole world and tell everyone that this is what's going on in the mind of Denny Stone or the mind of Bruce Coker or the mind of Jerry Jackson? He doesn't do such things. He doesn't publish those things uh, outwardly. He keeps them to himself. He forgives us, and then that is the end of it. And this is his glory to behave and to conduct himself in such a way. In contrast, he says, it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. There is a glory of God, and there is a glory of the king. And the glory of the king is to search out a matter. The king needs to be able to discern, to gather the facts, to gather the information, so that whenever he's making decisions in terms of justice, in terms of policy, and what he's promoting in the land, he needs to have all of the facts on the table. He needs to search out the matter so that he can make just judgments and make proper decisions that are going to be beneficial for the kingdom. In Job 29, Job 29, verse 16, one of the things that Job brings forward as an evidence of his godliness is that he was willing to investigate cases in which he did not have knowledge. Whenever something was brought to his attention, he didn't just receive it on the basis of one person's testimony, but he sought it out, he investigated it, so that he came to a better knowledge and a better understanding before he made rash judgments and decisions. Job 29.16 says, I was a father to the, to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. And this is the glory 
of the king to investigate as the chief magistrate in the land and the one who is to dispense justice and righteousness, then he needs to investigate, search out the matter before he makes rash decisions and puts into place decrees that are unhelpful and that are actually harmful to the kingdom. And also, that would be a glory to us as well. It's not only the king that needs to do this, but we need to do this as well in our relationships with one another. If someone comes and is telling you horrible things about another person, and you know that, as far as you know, this isn't true of their character or what you've known to be true, then we should investigate those things to make sure that we understand what's going on before we jump to hasty conclusions and do those kinds of things. Verse 3, as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. The heavens and the earth are immeasurable. They are immeasurable. The heaven for height, the earth for depth. No one can measure these things. So the heart of a king is also unsearchable. What is going on in his heart? Now, this can be taken one of two ways. One, it is unsearchable in terms of the depth of wickedness that is in the heart of men. Right? Men, now God knows all things and God knows the heart. But in terms of men, we cannot understand how high the heaven is and how deep the earth is. God knows those things, but men do not. And in the same way, we do not know the depth of the hearts of men. We don't even know how wicked and perverse our own hearts are. But God does know these things. He searches the hearts. So in that sense, God knows the depth of our hearts and that the heart, which is unsearchable to man, is searchable to God. But also in a positive sense, in in terms of the king and in terms of the decisions and what he's doing, Many of those things he keeps to himself. He does not reveal everything going on in his heart and in his mind. There are some things that are unsearchable that he does not reveal to others. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 37. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured, and the foundation of the earth searched out below... Then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Here again, if the heavens can be measured and the earth searched out below. The heavens and the earth will sooner be measured by men than that God will cast off and not fulfill and keep the promises that he has made to his people. Verse 4, take away the dross from the silver and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked before the king and his throne will be established in righteousness. Here, a comparison or a similitude. Dross from silver. Take away the dross from the silver, and there becomes a vessel for the smith. You have an element that has been purified, and now it can go to the smith, and he can forge this silver that has had the dross removed into some instrument that is useful, that is beneficial, that is ornate and beautiful, something that you would want to hang in your house or or use for an item of value. Well, in the same way as the dross needs to be removed from the silver in order for the silver to be useful to the smith, so you need to remove wicked counselors from the king so that the king will be a benefit and will produce righteousness within the land. Right? If the advisors of the king are themselves wicked men who are giving to him bad advice, bad counsel, sinful counsel, then how will his kingdom be established in truth, in justice, and righteousness? And isn't this the purpose of a kingdom? Isn't this why God gives to men 
authority, every governing authority, according to Romans 13, has been ordained by God. They are instituted by God for the punishment of evil and the rewarding of good. They are to dispense justice and righteousness in the land. Well, if the counselors to the king or the president or whomever it is, the one who has this authority, if they are corrupt in their thinking and in their understanding, if they're telling them evil actions are good and good actions are evil, such as in our own day, there are counselors in our administration who believe it is good to murder babies, who believe that it is good for men to marry men and women to marry women and for children to be mutilated. Do you know they even put litter boxes now in classrooms so that kids who are identifying as cats can go to the restroom in a classroom? This is actually happening. And there are people who think this is good. And many of them occupy positions in the government. And they are counselors to the president so that these kinds of policies are being promoted in the land. Well, you take those people out of the way, insane people, and you replace them with those with a measure of sanity, a measure of understanding of good and evil, of righteousness, and what is going to be beneficial for the people of the land. Even if they're not true believers, but they just have some understanding of natural righteousness, a natural understanding of the law of God and what is good for society, isn't it going to be better for the land? Would we rather live in a land with litter boxes in the classroom for human cats or in a land where you go to school and boys go into the boy restroom and girls go into the girl restroom? That's a better place to live. Would you rather live in a land that allows two men to get married or a land that prohibits two men from getting married? Would we rather live in a land where it's encouraged and tax money is used to murder babies or where tax money is used to punish people who murder babies? Well, one is obviously better than the other. But if you have wicked counselors who are telling the king, no, no, these things are all good. This is progressivism, man. We're, 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 we're enlightened people. This is how they do it over in Babylon. This is what they're doing in Europe. And don't we want to be like those enlightened people? No, we don't want to be like them. Actually, they should want to be more like people in Oklahoma because we're more sane than the insane people. That's what they should want to be like. But no one ever looks to us, and certainly they do not look to the Christian church for wisdom and understanding in terms of establishing justice and righteousness. However, we ought to pray and desire those kinds of things. Remove the wicked counselors, and the kingdom will be established in righteousness. Wasn't this a part of the problem with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon? His counselors were wicked men, and they gave to him bad counsel. And the result of that bad counsel is the dividing, the splitting up of the Davidic kingdom into these two kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Verse 6, Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, Come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Now, of course, all of these are given in the context of a king and of those who might come before him. But these rules and principles apply generally across the board. The king and the glory of the king and the honor there is the greatest degree of that. But there are certainly lesser authorities and lesser honors that this would apply to as well. Here in verse 6 and 7, the chief thing that is being laid out for us is humility. We need to be humble in our assessment of ourselves. And we should not have this craving, this desire 
for glory and honor, for people to heap glory and honor on us. Because those who pursue glory and honor in that way, it may be that in their pursuit of honor, they're actually going to be humiliated. And what is worse, to be unrecognized in a crowd or to be recognized and demoted in front of everyone? Right? Being unrecognized and not being brought up to a high position, well, maybe that's a slight if you deserve it, but it's not as bad as grabbing a hold of something that is above you and then having the king in the presence of everyone there put you in your place and tell you, why are you sitting up here at the front? Who are you? Get out of here. Go back there to the back. That's going to be a very humiliating experience. And the reason people do that is because of their pride, because they have an inflated view of themselves, and because they are more concerned, all they care about is their own glory and honor. It is self-love that causes men to behave in this way. But we shouldn't be like that as Christians. We should be humble, we should prefer others above ourselves, and we should be willing to take the place of least honor, the place of humility. Wasn't it our Lord Jesus Christ who washed the feet of his own disciples? A, a, a very humbling act, and as he did for them, so we ought to do for one another. Then, if we receive glory and honor, then so be it. If we go to the banquet with the king, and we're sitting in the back, and we're not making a, a fuss about ourselves, we're not announcing to him and waving at him, trying to get him to see us, and then he, on his own, recognizes us back there, and tells us, hey, you, you come up here to the front, and does that in the presence of everyone, then that's good and fine if it happens naturally, not because we're pursuing it. And that's an even greater honor because it shows that the king really does love you and truly does have this affection for you. And ultimately, this has to be applied spiritually to the gospel, right? It is the first who will be last and the last who will be first. Those who are seeking their own glory and to promote themselves on the day of judgment, what is going to happen to those people? They're going to be cast aside. They're going to be told, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. But to those who are humble, those who are contrite, those who are lowly in spirit, those who serve the saints, who wash the feet of the saints, who took these positions of humility with no glory and honor, what will Jesus do on the day of judgment for them? He will confess their name before his father and before his angels. And he will tell them, you, you come over here with me. You come enter into the kingdom prepared before the world was created. Luke 14, Jesus reiterates this proverb in Luke 14, verses 7 to 11. <clears throat> this was an issue that was worth addressing in the days of Solomon, around 9 to 800 B.C., and it was an issue that was worth addressing in the days of Christ. And it's an issue that's worth addressing in our own day as well, because these are sins that are common to men, right? And temptations that are common to men, even to us. Luke 14:7. he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. 
But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one has invited you comes, you may say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here, now, the purpose of this parable is not teaching proper etiquette at dinner parties. Though it may have some application to a dinner party, these are gospel issues. These are issues relating to salvation. It is this desire for glory and honor that is motivating these people to take for themselves and to claim these seats of highest position. What is motivating them to do that is not a spiritual principle, but it's coming from their flesh. It's coming from pride, and it must be crucified. We must do away with these things. The one who exalts himself is going to be humbled. If we want exaltation in this life, then in the life to come, we're going to have humility. But if we humble ourselves before the Lord, then he will exalt us. That's the point that we need to know and understand. Proverbs 25, verses 8 to 10. Do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? Argue your case with your neighbor and do not reveal the secret of another. Or he who hears it will reproach you and the evil report about you will not pass away. There, do not hastily argue your case in a hasty way, without the facts, without the information, right? With just coming to a very quick conclusion about something and making a pronouncement of judgment and then proceeding to go to these uh, lawsuits, to go to court, you'll be considered a litigious person if you are in this manner of hastily bringing cases to, to the court. I'm sure that Bruce, as our resident lawyer, has seen many people who are like this, who are very quick to want to argue, to want to sue, to want to do these kinds of things, and then they spend their money on their lawyers, and then when it comes to court, the facts are not on their side, and they're humiliated, and they look like a fool, and a person who is just out uh, greedy for gain, and just somebody who has a sour attitude and just likes to fight and bicker and complain all the time. Don't do that, he says. Don't be hasty to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? When your neighbor comes with the facts and is able to prove that you're wrong and he's right, you're going to be humiliated in the courtroom in front of all of these witnesses, and they're going to know that this guy is a liar. He's bearing false witness. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just a petty individual who just likes to bicker and fight and cause problems. This is what everyone will conclude. Instead, argue your case with your neighbor and do not reveal the secret of another. If there is some issue between you and your neighbor, then do not hastily bring it to court. Instead, try to go and resolve it with your neighbor one-to-one. -one. Avoid all of that and just try to come to a resolution on the matter. Now, if you go to your neighbor and he himself is unwilling and he will not give and he's in the wrong and you're in the right, then it may be that it does need to rise to that next level. However, according to 1 Corinthians, there are times when even when we are in the right, it's better to be defrauded than to drag our brothers into the law courts. It may be that at some point we say, I know that I'm right and I know that he's wrong, but instead of dragging this into the court, I'm just going to let it go and I'm not going to act upon it because I don't want the name of Christ to be blasphemed. 
That may be the case. It may not be the case. There may be other times when it is necessary, when livelihood and reputation necessitate the bringing of the thing before the court. However, if it's possible to decide it with your neighbor, then decide it with the neighbor, and then don't reveal the secrets to another. If it's between you and your neighbor, and then you and your neighbor settle it, then why does your other neighbor need to know about it? Why does your family need to know about it? Why do you need to tell everyone that you work with or everyone at the church about everything that's going on? You've settled it between you and your neighbor. It's a dead issue. Why are you dragging it out and beating a dead horse to death? It's already dead. I mean, you can't really beat it to death anymore, but that's what people do. They just want to keep on beating it over and over and over. Don't do that, he says. Don't reveal the secrets of another. Or he who hears it will reproach you, and the evil report about you will not pass away. The neighbor will hear about this. He's going to bring the evidence, and then everyone will know this guy is just a malicious gossip. He's a slanderer. He's a backbiter. He just loves to talk. He's a troublemaker. And there are people who get those kinds of reputations as a troublesome meddler. They just always are meddling in things that they should not meddle in, and everyone knows that, and it's a bad report, and once you gain that reputation, it'll be very difficult for you to ever overcome that. It will not pass away. Once people fix in their mind that a person is a certain way, it may take years of contrary behavior for them to ever gain your trust and for them to be convinced, you know what? He isn't this. He is a changed man. He's a different man. She's a different woman. She has changed and to adopt that new attitude towards you. Matthew 5, 25. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 25. It says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Right? Make friends quickly. Right? Come to a resolution with your opponent as quickly as you can. Deal with the issue. Do it properly so that everything is solved and then be done with it and move on. 25, Proverbs 25, verse 11. 11 says, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Here, apples of gold in settings of silver. This is a very valuable, ornate, it's a very precious, beautiful object. An apple of gold set in silver. It's a very valuable thing. Well, just like that is valuable, it's beautiful, uh, it's ornate, so is a word spoken in right circumstances. A person who has the ability to speak proper words in the right circumstance. If someone is grieving, they have the ability to speak words of comfort to them. If someone is rejoicing, then they have the ability to encourage them even more so that there's even more rejoicing. If there is a sin that needs to be addressed, they have the ability to do so with gentleness and respect, and they're able to speak concerning the issue in a way that is proper, in the right circumstance. The pe person who has the ability to do that is very valuable, and they are very precious to the Christian church because they are going to say timely words uh, according to the proper context and the proper circumstance that people need to hear. 
And we have to have discernment. We have to grow in wisdom and understanding so that we are able to exercise and to practice these kinds of things within the church. Right? We remember in Matthew chapter 12 that it is the good man who brings good treasures out of his heart. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37. And this is what we should desire to be. And it takes, it takes time. It takes wisdom. It takes experience. We have to be taught by the Holy Spirit of God. And then in some regards, there are those who have more of a proclivity and a gifting, a giftedness toward this. All of us need to be able to speak a proper word in the circumstance. And for some, that's more natural. And for others, it's more difficult. But we all need to grow in one way or another. And if we're not able to speak a proper word in the circumstance, then what is the better course of action for us? To keep our mouth shut, yes, which is typically the hardest lesson for any of us to learn. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The good man brings out of the good treasure what is good. And here, the good treasure is a good word. It's a good word spoken in the right circumstance. And we need to be able to do that in the proper way. Verse 12, like an earring of gold in an ornament of fine gold, is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Here, an earring of gold, an ornament of fine gold. This is what the comparison is to. Again, something of value, something of beauty, something that is ornate in what it does. But also with an earring, there is, you know, I don't know, I don't have this experience myself, <clears throat> but I have heard, and I've witnessed it in my own children, the girls, not the boys, that when there is the initial piercing of the ear, there is a little bit of pain that comes with that. There is pain, and then the pain is followed by beauty, right? Something that now they can wear that gives to them beauty, that uh, it's something of value that they can carry with them. Well, in the same way, just as the earring at first is painful and uncomfortable, but ultimately it leads way to what is beautiful and what is valuable to the person, so reproof. Whenever we are reproved, initially, it can seem painful. It can hurt. It can be uncomfortable. However, when we learn from that, then that reprover becomes very valuable to us and very beautiful to us to the one who has a listening ear. Now, to the one whose ear is not opened to hear the word of God, then it's just painful to him and he doesn't like it and he's ultimately going to you know, say horrible things about this man. But the one with the listening ear, he loves the reproof that he received because it helps him to grow in grace and godliness. In Psalm 141, verse 5, there the psalmist speaks of the righteous man striking him. And he doesn't mean striking him physically, but he means striking him in, by way of rebu rebuke or reproving him. 41.5, let the righteous man smite me. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. 
It is oil upon my head. Do not let my head refuse it. The righteous smiting me in kindness. Right, that would be the same as speaking the truth in love. When we reprove someone or strike them in this way, it cannot be motivated by pride, by arrogance, by self-righteousness, by anger and bitterness and hostility. If we strike someone, even if what we're saying is true, but we're doing it with an attitude of self-righteousness and an attitude of anger and bitterness, is it going to produce a good fruit in that person? No, they're just going to resist it. They're going to dig their heels in, and it's going to be a hindrance to their receiving the instruction, even if the instruction is itself good. But when the smiting is done in kindness, and there is reproof in kindness, then it is oil upon the head. It's beneficial to me, and I should not refuse it. We should not refuse it. Also, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. There it's the same. If anyone's caught in a trespass, then we should restore them, but with what kind of spirit? Here he calls it the spirit of gentleness. Psalm 141, it was the spirit of kindness. It's one in the same spirit. And who is the spirit that produces this attitude within us? The Holy Spirit of God. Fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And in this way, when there is a word spoken that is reproving, then it is like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold to the one who listens. Verse 13, 25, 13. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. Here, in the time of harvest, when the people are out in the field, it's hot, it's sweaty, it's dirty work. And if there's a cool breeze that comes during that time, it makes the work much more bearable, much more tolerable. It brings refreshing. It gives energy. It rejuvenates the soul and the spirit of the man so that he's able to work even harder and continue in doing the things that he has done. This is the way it is. If you're working in manual labor, you're working outside, it's hot, you're sweating, you're miserable. It's in the middle of summer. You're longing for winter again when it's cooler. And then the clouds come over, the breeze begins to blow, and it makes it to where what you're doing is not nearly as bad. It's actually very pleasant, and you begin to enjoy the things that you are doing out there. Well, just as it is in the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his master. Just as the cool breeze refreshes the, the worker out in the hot sun, so the faithful messenger refreshes the soul of his master whenever he faithfully delivers his message and brings back word to his master of the good news that he desired and longed to hear of. This is the way that it should be. Such was the case with um, <clears throat> Joseph's brothers. When they brought back word to their father, uh, Joseph was alive. It brought refreshing to the spirit of their father. This was the case with Abraham, with his servant, when he went to fetch a wife for his son Isaac. When he came back, that faithful servant refreshed the soul of his master. 
Such is ultimately the case with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven as a messenger from God and brought refreshing to our souls by giving to us the good message of the gospel. And such also today are those messengers, which is all of us, who go out into the world and bring the gospel of peace. Right? How beautiful, it says, are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. It brings refreshing to the soul of the master. It brings refreshing to the ears of the listener whenever such things are done. This is the way that we should be, that our words should be seasoned with salt, and it should bring refreshing to the souls of those who listen. Then verse 14. Like clouds in wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Here, the contrast, right? The cold snow in the time of harvest is the faithful messenger. But a man who boasts of his gifts falsely is like clouds and wind that have no rain, right? Whenever you're in this arid climate and you're dependent upon the rainfall in order for your crops to produce, and you see the clouds coming, there is the hope and the expectation that there's going to be the blessing of rain that is going to increase the crops and make you more prosperous and make it more fruitful. And yet there are times when the clouds form and yet they never drop any rain. So what benefit are they? They don't benefit you in terms of the harvest. And there are those who are like this, who boast of their gifts, they boast of their talents, they talk about all the things that they can do, and yet then they're never able to deliver on those things. This has happened, you know, many examples of this. Uh, you know, if you've ever played sports, you'll come across people who, you know, you're playing a pickup game of basketball or some other sport, and they're, oh, yeah, I'm really good. I've, I've played many years, and I'm really a, a gifted, and, and I'm a really good player. And then you get with them on the court, and what do you find out? They stink. Yeah, this guy's a bum, right? He's dragging us all down. We can't win with him. This is the way it is. So they speak big things, and they may even look good, but then they don't deliver when they're there in the middle of the competition. And this is how it is in many aspects of life. There are those who speak loud boasts of folly. They speak of all of the gifts that they have, of all the benefit and advantage that they are, who boast of their gifts, but they do so falsely. And no one is this truer of than false teachers. False teachers who claim to be teachers from God, they claim to be messengers from God, they tell us that if we will listen to them, they have the keys to success, they have the keys that we need in order to have the life that God has designed for us. And yet, they speak loud boast of folly. And they claim these things, but they do not Deliver. They say that they're teachers, but their gift is a false gift. Instead of putting men on the straight and narrow way, they turn aside from the way, and by their words, many people become corrupted. Second Peter 2 in Jude 1 actually used this same analogy to describe false teachers. Second Peter 2, verse 17. Here, it's not clouds without water, but it's a spring without water. Again, what's the point of a spring? You've got to get water from it. What good does it do to dig a well if the well doesn't produce water? If it's a dry well, it is of no benefit and no value to the people. So false teachers, 2.17, springs without water, mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. 
They are springs, but they have no water within them. They, now, they claim to have water, but their water is poisonous, it is bitter, and it will only lead to death and destruction. Then Jude chapter 1, Jude 1, 12 to 13. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Here, two elements to the false teacher. There's one is the uselessness. That is, clouds without water. This is what they are like. A spring without water, a cloud without water, is utterly useless to the people who come encounter with it. But then also here, they're very dangerous because they're hidden reefs as well. And a hidden reef that the sailors don't know is there is going to shipwreck, uh, is going to lead to a shipwreck and they're going to lose the lives of the people and their cargo and everything is going to be lost. And in the same way, the false teacher in the church will shipwreck the faith of the saints so that it brings them to ruin and to destruction unless they overcome their false teachings. So we must be on guard and test all things by the word of God so that those who boast, who claim to be teachers and to claim to have this gift, that they're not doing so falsely, but they're doing so truly in that they can actually help us and be beneficial to us in regards to our salvation. Well, we'll stop there for today and we'll pick up next week in verse 15 and we'll finish out uh, the rest of, of this chapter. And uh, before we close, just a reminder to please continue. Uh, it was so good to see Miss Chandler with us this morning. She's been uh, down with a bad hip for several months and uh, has been through a lot, and it was great to have her today. So let's please keep her uh, in our prayers. And then also continue to pray for Josh and Gayatri uh, with their baby uh, that is coming and just Pray that everything would go well and smoothly with them. Uh, So we want to keep those two specifically in our prayer. So with that, let's go to the Lord and we'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time that we've had together, Lord, with your people. Lord, to be gathered, to worship you, Lord, to sing your praises, to offer our prayers to you, Lord, to hear from your word, Lord, to fellowship with your saints. Lord, we have enjoyed so much goodness and kindness from you. Lord, so many spiritual blessings, Lord, that you have poured out upon us today. And Lord, we know that in many parts of the world, those people live in darkness. They are without God and they are without hope. And yet here we live in light. And Lord, even here in our own land, Lord, even in many of the churches, Lord, they claim to be churches, but... In many cases, we know that what they are claiming is a false claim. And Lord, that there is little access to the things of God. Lord, there's little stability. Lord, that they are not being instructed and taught. And Lord, being built up properly in the faith and united with mature Christians. And yet, Lord, we see that in our case, we have many blessings. Lord, that even many in the Christian world do not experience. Lord, to be bound together with such fine people. 
Lord, with so many who desire the truth and righteousness, and Lord, we are very grateful for that. And so, Father, we pray that we would not presume upon this kindness, but rather that we would use it, Lord, knowing that to whom much is given, much is required. And that, Lord, you require even more of us because of the many blessings you've bestowed upon us. So, Lord, may we make advantage and, Lord, may we use those things that you've granted to us for our own benefit, Lord, and for the benefit and for the salvation of our families. So, Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. And, Lord, we pray that you continue to be merciful to us. Lord, we are also today, Lord, it was a great joy and a great surprise for us uh, to be with Miss Chandler, Lord, to be worshiping with her again. Lord, we thank you for safely bringing her through uh, this ordeal. Lord, that uh, though she's been absent from us for several months because of her ailment, Lord, we are so grateful that she was able to be here with us today. And we pray, Lord, that you continue to strengthen her, continue to sustain her, Lord, that her hip and her leg would get stronger and stronger and that she might be back to, Lord, to what she was before and and even better. So, Father, just pray for your blessing to be upon her and that you might use this to continue to build up her faith and the faith of Mr. Chandler. Lord, we are grateful for him as well. And, Lord, for the love and devotion that he, as as a husband, to her for so many years, as he has shown for her in her own report of, how he has cared for her. Lord, what an example set before us of of godly believers, Lord, of an elderly couple who have been married for so many years, faithful to one another, and who continue, Lord, to practice and to exercise love one to another, even in this late stage of their life. So we ask and we pray, Father, for you to continue to bless their home, and that, Lord, as they come into the waning days of their life, Lord, that you might reveal yourself to them more and more. Lord, that they would have an even greater hope and comfort and peace. Lord, as they get ready to pass, Lord, one of these days through that last test, Lord, through the valley of the shadow of death, may they never fear any evil, knowing that you are with them and that your rod and your staff will protect them and that you will safely deliver them into your heavenly kingdom. Lord, may all of us have this confidence before you, And Lord, may you continue to build up our faith in such things. Lord, as well, we thank you for Josh and Gayatri. And Lord, we are grateful for the good news of the baby, Lord, that is coming. And we just continue to pray that you would be with them. And that, Lord, you might watch over them. And Lord, that everything would go well. And that you might bring into this world, Lord, a a new addition to their family. And that it would be a great blessing. And that their child would be raised in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Father, be with us today as we go from here. Lord, we pray for safety as we travel home. And Lord, that you might bless us throughout this week. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.